You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning, good morning. If I get emotional this morning, uh, it is because of tremendous gratitude. I'm so thankful to the Lord Jesus for allowing me to lead this body of believers for 38 years. And I am equally as grateful that he has relieved me of that responsibility. (laughs) That he has raised up Derek Bledsoe to lead this church into the next generation. And... uh, We knew that God had to raise someone up from the inside because there's no way an outsider could ever come and have a clue about how to lead this congregation. And God gave Derek to us when he was 21 years old and an unbeliever. He came to Christ shortly after that and became a sponge for the word and and wanting to learn. And he was telling me this morning, I wasn't aware of it, but it was 14 years ago, the 1st of June, uh, was Derek's first day on staff here. Um, he was a gopher. I mean, that's all we trusted him with. Just gopher this, gopher that. He was actually my wife's gopher, and he kind of just came up through the ranks. And basically, he's done every job in the church except youth. He skipped that one. He just said, you know what, I'm going to leave that to other people. But uh, then several years ago, we began bringing him on stage with me and team teaching so that you could begin to see him in that role. And uh, I, have, I have been blessed and just... Uh, enormously gratified to be able to team teach with him on this stage together uh, for these last three years or so. It just really gave me a renewal of the teaching and preaching of God's Word and his different perspective and his quick wit and so many things have happened in those three years. I'm just thankful to God for that. Uh, and I just basically gave that, this, that role up completely two weeks ago and here I am back here by myself. And so God has a sense of humor Uh, But Derek is actually uh, going to start a series, a verse-by-verse series through the book of Titus next Sunday, and he's also doing some papers on his doctorate, so he needed a couple of weeks, and Chris did an incredible job last week, Uh, phenomenal, and uh, he asked me if I would uh, come back for a standalone this Sunday, and and, uh, so I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that. That's how you'll see me in the future, my role in the future will be just to back Derek up and anyone on the staff that I can. And when he needs some time off, I'll, I'll step in and persecute the saints for a little while and allow him to be prepared. And in the meantime, I'm, I'm taking really what, what God has done in my life at this particular stage of my life is not something that I knew was going to happen. It wasn't something I planned. It wasn't something I could have caused to happen is to carry the message and the ministry of the city on the hill, the hospital church all over the nation. And strangely enough, he's opening the doors for me to be able to do that. I was in Detroit uh, for about four days uh, a week and a half ago, uh, spent some time with the church planter that uh, we are helping start a church there. He's a former Detroit police officer, priest in that church on Sunday morning, met with the fearless ladies uh, who had done fearless series for women after church, Uh, had an opportunity to speak to the Covenant Eyes staff there. I've written a book for them. It'll be published within the next month or so, and I'm partnering in some ways where we are going to be able to cooperate together on getting the message of uh, the Fearless Series for Women and now the Fearless Series for Men that I'm producing out into the churches. Uh, This week was privileged to host a group of 
of men from Pure Desire Ministry, uh, which is the Ted Roberts Ministry, is helping men, Christian men, to walk in freedom from pornography and the sexual addiction and things that come from that. And I asked Michael to come out there, my videographer, and we got nine of these men's testimonies on tape. Uh, that will be a part of the Fearless series for men that's going to hopefully come out after the first of the year. Next Sunday, I fly out to Los Angeles and will be able to interview Roland, Dr. Roland Slade, who's a pastor in San Diego, but he's also the chairman of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. And you're aware of all the mess that's been happening with our convention about covering up uh, women's claims of sexual assault in churches uh, historically. And now our convention, our, our denomination is, is really perfectly strapped strategized to begin the healing process for women who have experienced sexual abuse. And so in God's timing, all of this is beginning to come together. A couple of weeks after, about a week after that, I actually go to Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm going to be actually doing a couple of interviews there. And God is just putting this whole thing together in ways that I never could have caused to happen. So I'm thankful I'm thankful to be able to have been a part of the development of this ministry. And now I'm thankful to our elders who have supported me in the ability to go and take this message around the nation and equip other churches to do the hospital help, hope, and healing work um, in their congregations. And so, once again, let me just say thank you. I remember the story. I think I've told it before, probably have. But in 38 years, you tell all your stories many times of a man who was stranded on an island for many, many years and finally was rescued. And when the rescuers came up onto to the, uh, the beach, he had three little huts that were built there on the beach. And they said, well, what are those? And he said, well, that first hut, that's where I live. Well, that makes sense. If you're on a stranded island, you've got to have shelter over your head. And they said, well, what's that second hut? And he said, well, that's where I go to church. And they said, well, what's that third hut? And they said, well, that's where I used to go to church. So he hacked himself off and changed churches. Now, I tell that story to pastors, and pastors are the ones that can really get it because it's, just about, it's, it's about as difficult to change churches as it is for you just to turn left next week instead of turning right, and you can go change churches. And so pastors really get the humor of that particular story. You remember, how many of you are old enough to remember when you checked into the hospital, they had you fill out a form, and they ask you what your church preference was. How many ever remember that church preference form? I don't think they do that anymore, do they? They could care less, right? I remember hearing the story of a guy that didn't go to church, but, you know, that, that church preference box, he checked red brick. <laughs> and that's about as far as a lot of people's understanding of what the church is goes. That the church is nothing but a building. It's red brick. It's stone. It's whatever. It's a building. So there's a lot of confusion in the world, but there's a lot of confusion really among many Christ followers about what is the church? Really, what is it? And how does Jesus relate to the church? Well, in order to get that answer, we have to come to the New Testament. Because if we look and understand the way that Jesus relates to the church, then we get an idea of how we are to relate to the church. And the New Testament gives us a lot of images because one image of Jesus' relationship to the church is not adequate. So as you read through the New Testament, you'll see there are many, there are a multiplicity of illustrations and analogies and pictures for us to see how Jesus relates to the church. One of the key images is the New Testament calls us the body of Christ. We are his body, but what is Christ? Well, he says that he is the head. And so he gives instructions to the body, and we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus carrying out those instructions. Another illustration is that the church is the family of God. 
And he is the father, and we are his adopted children, adopted into the household of the heavenly father. But I love this imagery here. It says that the church is the bride of Christ. I love that. We are his bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. And what the New Testament tells us that Jesus is doing is he is preparing his bride for this great wedding feast when someday he will come and receive his bride, the church, unto himself. And there's going to be this great eternal wedding feast. And it's obvious from these images and many more that we could go through that Jesus has this very, very close relationship to the church. The church is his body, he is the head. The church, or the fa- Jesus, are the, he is the father of the family and we are his children and he is the groom and he loves and protects his bride, the church. Now, so much so that Ephesians chapter tells us that Jesus died for the church. People ask, well, what did Jesus die for? He died for the church. He died for those that he was going to call out of the world into his body, into his family, to become a part of his bride. Jesus died for the church. He loves the church. Now, the head of the church, the father of the family, the groom of the bride are all perfect, okay, right? But his body, his children, and his bride are not perfect. Can we say amen to that? I've never, in over 40 years of ministry, I've never seen an ugly bride, but I'm telling you, Jesus' bride is pretty ugly sometimes. Jesus' bride, the church, can be pretty ugly, but guess what? Jesus loves her anyway, and she will never be perfect until he comes again and receives his bride unto himself, and then the bride of Christ is perfect Never be perfect until this body is transformed, until this, the, our, his children are in the Father's house, until the groom comes for the bride. And until then, we struggle. We struggle as an imperfect gathering. We struggle as an imperfect bride. We struggle as an imperfect family. We struggle as an imperfect body. We struggle as an imperfect church. But Jesus loves the church anyway. I've heard so many times through the years, people say, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the church. And I've contemplated the, the stupidity, pardon me for being point blank, I've, I've contemplated the stupidity of that statement for someone who claims to be a Christ follower. Say, I love Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the church. Why do people make a statement like that? Well, they make it because church is imperfect. We, we are imperfect. And they say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. And absolutely, there's no doubt about it. We, we believe one thing and, and the flesh gets it hold and we do something else. And so when someone says, you know, I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. I say, well, brother, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll screw it up because then it won't be perfect anymore. So we need to understand the contradiction of that statement and the contradiction of even that mentality. It's like saying, well, I like the head, but I reject the body because it's deformed. It's saying like, I love the father, but I reject his children because they're all crazy. It's like saying, I like the groom. I love the groom, but I'm going to reject the bride because she is eternally ugly. So what is the church? Is the church a concept? Is the church a building? Is it an organization? As you look in the New Testament, it says that it is none of this. The church is not a concept. It is a living reality. It's not a building. It is a people gathered in his name. It's not an organization. It is a living organism, the body of Christ. 
The Greek word that is translated into English as church is the word ekklesia. And it means called out ones. It's a combination word of the Greek preparation preposition ek, which means out of, and the Greek verb kaleo, which means to call. And when you put it together, it means the called out ones. And there are two ways that this is used in the New Testament, that the word church is used. First of all, it's used to refer to the universal church. And when we talk about the universal church, what we're talking about is all Christians from all time until Jesus comes again. Christians right now, all over the world, Christians who died 600, 700 years ago, that makes up the universal church, the called out ones, the ecclesia. But the other way that it is used is to refer to the local church, the local gathering, the local expression of a part of that universal church. And quite frankly, folks, most of the time in the New Testament, when church is used, it is not referring to that universal church. It is referring to those local called out groups of people. Paul didn't go out planting the universal church. He went out planting local church, the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi. And so God's heart, yes, he's building this bride that is universal, but he also loves and is equipping and is building these local expressions of the universal body of Christ. So the church, what is the church? The church is people who are called out. Called out of what? called out of the world into his kingdom, called out of darkness into his light, called out of blindness into sight, called out of death into life. We are the called out. That's the church. And the church, the problem, folks, isn't with the church. The problem is what we've done with it. The problem is what sinners, what imperfect people turn it into. And so this morning, I want to spend the next three or four hours going back to the... Some of you have been around here a long time ago. He's not kidding you, folks. The next service, you're just going to have to wait in the parking lot until I'm done. Not really. This morning, let's go back to the very beginning, and let's hear from Jesus about the church. And, And I want to tell you today why I love the church, why I believe in the church, And why you can't love the church, you can't love Jesus without loving the church. Folks, get that. You cannot love Jesus without loving his bride, loving his body, loving his family. As a matter of fact, this text in Matthew chapter 16, if you'll turn in your smartphones to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to pick up this morning in verse 13. This is the very first text that I preached on 38 years ago on January the 1st, 1984, with this little startup group of people that we started what at the time was called Cornerstone Baptist Church. I preached on this text because I wanted that group of individuals that were forming this new church, I wanted them to understand what they were doing. I wanted them to understand what was happening in the forming of this new local church. And I wanted them to understand my passion and my commitment. And I'm thankful to Jesus that he's allowed me to devote my entire adult life to the church. I believe in the church. I love the church. And I'm thankful that he has given me the passion and the health so far and the calling to still love the church I love this local body of believers, but now he's given me a platform to go to those other churches out there and export. I love the church. I've given my entire adult life and will do so until I die. 
I'm going to leave a haggard corpse for the glorified body. Working for the church. Jesus' bride, Jesus' body, Jesus' family. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 18. Let me set the stage this morning for the text. Matthew tells us that Jesus at this time is in a place called Caesarea Philippi. He asks the disciples a very, very important question that sets us up for our text. He says, who do men say that I am? In other words, what's the word on the street out there? What are they saying about me? People have all kinds of opinions about Jesus, right? You go out there and say, well, tell me what you believe about Jesus, and they'll give you all kinds of answers. That's, that was the same even in Jesus' time when he walked on the earth. So he says, who are they saying I am there? What is the word on the street out there about me? And Peter responds. He says, well, some say you are John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had already been beheaded, okay, and, uh, because he had called, uh, you know, uh, Herod into, uh, you know, uh, a moral accountability, and so he just chopped his head off. But they thought, well, maybe John the Baptist has come back because John was a a great preacher and and Jesus was a great preacher and he, then he said well some say you're Elijah uh, Elijah was a great towering figure in the history of the Jewish people of Israel in their history and and he, so maybe what he's saying is you're, you're a great person they're saying you're a great guy you're just a good dude you're like Elijah man a powering figure and then some say you're like they're saying you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah centuries before that and had preached for 40 years calling God's people back to, back to Yahweh. And so maybe he's Jeremiah that's come back to us. In other words, there's a great deal of confusion out there on the street about who this Jesus is. Everyone had an opinion just like they do today. But what Jesus really wants to know is who do you say I am? And that leads him to that very next question. So he says, okay, that's what they're saying. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer is this. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Wow. Wow. What a statement. And immediately Jesus says to Peter, that's right. You nailed it. You got it. But Peter don't get the big head. Jesus knew Peter well enough to know that Peter was going to get the big head, okay? Because Jesus says, you didn't figure this out for yourself, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. In other words, Peter, what you said is true. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. But you didn't figure that out for yourself. That was a divine revelation from my father. And then Jesus makes this statement to Peter that is perhaps the most misunderstood, the most misinterpreted, and the most misused text in all of the New Testament about the church. And Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now this morning I want to I want us to see three very important things that Jesus says about the church. That Jesus tells us about why he loves the church, why he is connected to the church, and why we should love the church, and why we should be connected to the church. Some things that we should never forget. First of all, I love the church, and I believe in the church because of the founder of the church. Notice verse 18. Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, who is speaking? The Sunday school answer will work here. Jesus, okay? All right, if you don't know the answer, just say Jesus, okay? That's right, Jesus is speaking. So who is going to build the church? Jesus. Jesus. Whose church is it? He says it is 
my church. I will build this which is mine, which is my church. So who is the founder of the church? Who does the church belong to? Jesus. Who's the architect of the church? Jesus. Now understand this, folks. Understand this. Men build buildings. Men gather great crowds. But only Jesus builds the church because it is his church. He's the founder of the church. I love in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, after Peter has stood and the day of Pentecost has come and the Holy Spirit has come to dwell eternally in those believers and empower them and Peter stands up and preaches that great Pentecostal sermon about Peter wasn't a Pentecostal, but it was the day of Pentecost. You get it? You understand what I'm saying? I just want to clarify here because you've got to make sure everybody understands. Um, Peter didn't swing from chandeliers. Well, maybe he did. I don't know. I've got to quit while I'm ahead. My son used to sit over here and I would get in he'd go dad quit digging and I'd know I'd gone too far but I love Acts chapter 2 verse 47 after Peter's preached that that sermon and about Jesus and who he was and it says that 3,000 people were saved in other words 3,000 came to faith in Christ and it says and the Lord who was adding to the their number, it says, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, that's Jesus building his church. That's not men building the church. It wasn't men and women adding to the church. It was Jesus adding to the church, building his church. So you see, folks, Jesus is the Lord of the church, so we should fully trust him. Jesus is the leader of the church, so we should faithfully follow him. He is the lover of the church, so we should cling to him and him only. He is the life of the church, so we should look to him only for his guidance. Think with me for a moment of the wonder of this one who is the founder of this thing, this ecclesia, this called out ones, this church. He, the scripture reveals to us that the founder of the church is fully human, yet he is fully divine. He is God in flesh. That is called the divine mystery in scripture because it is so far beyond our human capacity with our finite minds to ever fathom the depths uh, that Jesus was fully human, yet he was also fully divine. And, and I'm glad that it's beyond my understanding because if I could reduce the creator down to my level with my peanut mind, then he would not be the God of heaven and earth. He's not only a man of God, they said, but he is the God-man. He's not only the son of God, which speaks of his humanity, no, son of man, which speaks of his humanity, but he's the son of God, the New Testament, which speaks of his divinity. Jesus was so human that he could get tired and needed to lay down and take a nap in the bottom of the boat. But he was so divine when the storm came up, he could speak and calm the storm. He was so human that he went aside to a mountain to pray to the Father. But he was so divine that he spoke all things into existence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And without him, nothing has come into being that is in being. Jesus was so human that he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, but he was so divine then he could say, come forth, and raised him from the dead. Jesus was so human that he could be crucified on a cross, yet he was so divine that three days later he would move the stone and walk out victorious over death. This is the founder of the church. This is the one who declared to Peter and the disciples that day, I will build my church. He said he would build it, and he's been doing it for 2,000 years. You say, where? Where is Jesus building his church? 
Well, I tell you, he's building his church anywhere he can find people who will confess him and who will cling to him, who will follow him, who will obey him. Jesus will build his church right there. Think of it. Jesus did some incredible stuff. He did outlandish stuff. He freaked people out everywhere he went. Things that shocked to their very core the religious leaders because Jesus hung out with the outcasts. He hung out with the rejected of Jewish society whom the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees called sinners and would have nothing to do with them. These are the people that Jesus hung out with and he shocked, he literally shocked the religious community that he would do so. But that's who he started the church with. That's... Those were the first building blocks. Those were the first disciples. Those were those first people gathered there in Acts chapter 2. That's who Jesus built the church with because they confessed him. I love, and my life verse is 1 Corinthians 1.26. When I look over the whole duration of my life from birth to family to the life before Christ to the life after Christ, this is my life verse. 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise. In other words, you weren't the hotsy-totsy. You weren't the intelligent elite. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. You were just a bunch of wimps. Pardon me, Ralph Wimp, if you're here. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. I love that terminology. Go, what do you mean? I don't know. So that, and this is why he did it. This is why he chooses us fools. This is why he chooses so many of us that the world would look at and go, how can that possibly be the choice of God? Here's why. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Look at who you were when Jesus found you and see if you have anything to boast about. If you do, you need to go back and really understand who you were. The greatest hindrance to the gospel today, folks, the greatest hindrance of the work of the community of faith of the churches is churches that want to look pretty in the eyes of the world. Everywhere I go, pastors have this difficulty wrapping their minds and their hearts around this idea of being a place of help, hope, and healing, of helping addicts, of helping broken people, of helping sex addicts, of helping women who have been sexually abused because they want, they, they want their church to be pretty. They want their church to look successful in the eyes of the world. And they don't understand that those people come from all walks of life, that brokenness and pain knows no tax bracket. They're doctors, lawyers, and day laborers who need help, hope, and healing. But you see, there's this thing in the church today. We want to be pretty. We want to look successful in the eyes of the world. But you see, the reality is you can't come to the beginning of Jesus until you're willing to come to the end of yourself. And look in your mirror and say, I'm a fool. I'm of nothing. I have nothing to offer him. As Paul often did, he said all of those things, and he had all the credentials of his day, uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous for the law, and he said, I count it all as skubala. The Greek word there, I'll be nice, means dung. Translate it to modern vernacular. That's what 
Paul said, that's what it's worth. It's worth what I flush down the toilet. That's who I was. Now you understand, don't you? And remember, the church is people. It's not a building. So this is why we often look more like the world than we do like Jesus because we are so concerned with how the world views us. But that's not what Jesus is building. Jesus is building his church. He's calling people out of death into life. He's calling people out of blindness into sight. He's the founder. He's the architect of the church. And that's why I believe in the church. Quickly, we must move on. Let's go to the foundation of the church. And I love this part of the text. It gets very, very um, difficult uh, linguistically and, and with the languages. But stay with me because I want you to understand something that's very important. You see, there's a founder of Jesus, but he's building his church on a foundation. Every building needs a foundation. And I love the fact that the children's building over here has 66 piers under its foundation. And there are 66 books in the Bible. Now, we didn't plan that, but the engineers told us, you've got to peer this building because there's water under there. And, 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 so, and they, they designed 66 piers. So when a tornado comes, come to City on a Hill, children's building, all-stars building, because that's the safest place in the world to be. It ain't going nowhere. It's built on 66. It has a firm foundation. So what is then the foundation upon which Jesus is building the church? This is so exciting. I just love this part. But it gets technical. Stay with me. You see, this encounter with the disciples that Jesus was involved in was just about six months before his crucifixion. So he'd been with them two and a half years before all this stuff began to come out. But it was time for the truth to begin to come out because Jesus now had turned his face toward Jerusalem. He had turned his face toward the cross. He knew it was going to happen, and he was preparing these disciples. And so Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And they responded, okay, Jesus is not surprised. That. But then he said to these 12, he said, who do you say that I am? Important truth. It doesn't matter what others are saying. You guys that have been with me for two and a half years, who do you? Who have you concluded that I am? You see, folks, it doesn't matter what others say about Jesus. It matters what you say about him. Not your brother, not your mama, not your sister, not your daddy, but you, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. What matters is what we say. And so Peter speaks up under the inspiration of the Father because Jesus said, the Father told you, he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was a drop the mic moment. That was a walk off a home run. Call it anything you want to. And immediately Jesus says, that's right, Peter, you nailed it, but don't get the big head because my Father had to reveal this to you. And then Jesus makes this statement that is one of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misused verses in the New Testament. He says, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, which means Simon, son of John. His daddy's name was John. Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you, here we go, that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, shall not overpower it. Now, our Catholic friends say that Jesus is referring to Peter as that rock upon which he's going to build his church. That Peter is the foundation of the church. That he's the first pope. And that all who now follow, follow in the lineage of that first pope 
the rock, the foundation upon which Jesus is saying he's going to build his church. And there's so many problems with this, historically, theologically, linguistically, and biblically. The first problem is the first pope is about soon to betray Jesus. <laughs> Not a real good beginning for the first pope because it's going to be Peter three times. It's going to betray Jesus in six months when the night that Jesus is arrested. But also later, the Apostle Paul says that he had to confront Peter, the first pope, if it was true, for his hypocrisy in front of the Galatian Christians. Because when the Judaizers came, Peter was enjoying a ham sandwich with these Gentiles, but when the Judaizers, these Jewish legalists came, he would eat Sam's sandwich and went over with the kosher folk. And Paul says, I confronted him to his face for his hypocrisy. So you have the first pope denying Jesus and then being a hypocrite in Galatia. Not a great start for the first pope. And the second problem with it is not even what Jesus said, if you understand the text. This is where it gets technical. Peter has three names that he's called in the New Testament. First of all, his name's Simon. That's his Hebrew name. That's his name his mama gave him. When Peter was born, mama and daddy said, we're going to name him Simon, okay? So that's his Hebrew name. Peter then is his Greek name. It's the name that Jesus laid on him, okay? It's his Greek name. It's the name that Jesus called him, and it's the Greek word Petros, which means stone, pebble, or rock, okay? Petros, Peter, stone, pebble, or rock. Then there's a third name, his Aramaic name, which was a derivative of the Hebrew language that Jesus called him in John 142. Uh, and the word, Arama the word Cephas, his Aramaic name, is actually a translation of the Greek Petros, which means, Cephas means a rock or a pebble. Are you with me here? So in Hebrew, he is Simon. In Aramaic, he is Cephas, stone or rock. In Greek, he is Petros, stone or rock, like my name. In English, I'm James. In Greek, I'm Iakobos. If you look in your Greek New Testament, I know all of you have got one. If you come to the book of James, it's going to say Iakobos. I like that, Iakobos. And in Spanish, my name is Jaime. I don't like Jaime. I don't like Jaime. I'm sorry. Spanish language is beautiful. I love it. But I don't like Jaime. So I'm going to go by Iakobos or James. So Jesus says to Peter, you are Petros. You are Peter, a rock, a stone, a pebble. Then he says, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. Petros, Petra. Peter is Petros, a rock or pebble, but he's going to build his church upon a Petra. Now, what Jesus is actually doing is using a play on words here. And we often do that. You can use play on the words. Peter is a masculine noun. Greek masculine noun. Petra is a feminine masculine noun. Now, a noun in Greek cannot be both feminine and masculine. They are different words. Petros is a masculine noun. Petra is a feminine noun. They're completely different words. In Greek, nouns are either feminine, masculine, or neuter, if it refers to an inanimate object. So Petras is a masculine noun, a rock or pebble. P 
Petra is a completely different Greek word. It's because it is a feminine noun, and it means a foundation rock, an outcropping of rock. As you study the history of the Greek language, these words are sometimes used interchangeably, but most often they are used to delineate the difference between that which is a rock, a pebble, or a stone, between this great outcropping of rock, this great foundation type of rock. And so Jesus says, you are Peter, a rock, a pebble, upon this Petra, this great foundation rock, this outcropping of rock, I will build my church. So what is this Petra that Jesus is referring to? If it's not Petros, Peter, if he's going to build on a Petra, what is that? It can only be the confession that Peter has just made. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, when you understand what Christos is, which is, we translate into English as Christ, it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, Messiah, that the prophet said the Messiah is going to come. And so Christ was not Jesus' last name. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Christ was a title. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And, Peter, and Jesus said the Father had to reveal that to you. You couldn't figure it out for yourself. And you are Peter, the stone, the pebble. But upon this Petra, this foundation stone, this outcropping of rock, I will build my church. And Jesus does. He builds his church. Everywhere the confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is spoken from the heart. Are you with me here? Whenever someone confesses Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, they are added to the church and Jesus is building his church. He is building it on the foundation of this confession. Acts 2, 47, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. How were they being saved? They were being saved because the first Christians were going out declaring this one that was crucified and we proclaim rose from the dead was the Christ, the Messiah that the Jewish people had looked for for centuries and then crucified. He's the son of the living God. And when they believed that, Jesus was building his church and he was adding to their number daily. You see, folks, that's why the scripture says in Romans 1.16 that we are not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ Christ put Messiah, the gospel of Messiah, the gospel of the sent one, the gospel of the Savior. We're not to be ashamed of the gospel of the Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And when the power of God unto salvation explodes in someone who makes this faith confession, Jesus adds them to the church, and he is building his church. See, the foundation of the church, folks, isn't a man. We talk about, well, this... James's church, it's never been my church, it's Jesus' church. Some of you say Derek's church, it's not Derek's church, it's Jesus' church. If it's a real church, it doesn't belong to any of us. It's his church. He's the founder, and he will build it upon this foundation. Never be ashamed of the confession of Jesus. Never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the means by which Jesus is building his church. And he may be doing it right now. You say, well, how does he do it? How does it work? He may be doing it right now. There may be somebody in this room right now who is hearing the message of who Jesus really is. 
And you're coming to understand his death, his burial and resurrection and what it was all about, that he was coming for forgiveness and grace and mercy and the Holy Spirit is ministering that conviction to you and you're on the very verge of making that confession once and for all, he is the Christ, the son of the living God and I give my life to him. And if you do so, Jesus is building his church. He adds you to his church. You're taken from death into life, from blindness into sight. Jesus building his church. Lastly, why do I love the church? Why do I believe in the church? Because of the founder is Jesus. Because of the foundation is built upon this, this confession of who he really is and because of the future of the church. I've committed my life to the church because of the future of the church. Jesus said in verse 18, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hell itself is not going to defeat this church that I am building. So folks, no matter how it looks temporarily, the future of the church of Jesus Christ is bright. It is bright because it's his church. It's not ours. It's bright because the King of kings and the Lord of lords says its future is bright. Do you know how many times through history the death knell of the church has been sounded. Over the last 2,000 years, how many times men have said, well, the church is dead. Not gonna make it. Too bad for the church. People in virtually every generation at some point have said, well, the church is on its last leg. It's going down. But the church just keeps marching on for 2,000 years. The church can ignore the church. I mean, the world can ignore the church can degrade the church, can persecute the church, but it just flourishes. In 1778, I think God has a sense of humor. The French atheist Voltaire declared that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would become extinct. Within 50 years of Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society had purchased the very house from which he said that and had a printing press printing Bibles. I love that. God has a sense of humor. When the bamboo curtain went down in the mid-1940s around communist red China, and China basically isolated itself from the world, no communication in, no communication out. Christianity at that time was outlawed in communist China, and so Christians were mercilessly persecuted, arrested, imprisoned, put to death. And at the time of the bamboo curtain coming down, Christians could be literally numbered in the, literally in the thousands. There were just not many Christ followers in communist red China. The bamboo curtain began to rise in the 1980s. And it was, interesting enough, it was Richard Nixon that was one of the key, it was one of the, the Watergate was not his greatest accomplishment. Uh, opening up China was the greatest when he opened up talks with communist red China. And as a result of that, the bamboo curtain began to, to, to be raised and China became open to the world. And nobody knew what the church was going to look like in China because for four decades, it had been silent. It, you couldn't get Bibles in. You couldn't get missionaries in. Nobody knew how, what happened to these thousands of Christians that were in communist red China when, in four decades, how many of them were killed out. And when the bamboo curtain came up, we discovered that the number of believers in Jesus Christ in communist red China was approximately 100 million. From literally being numbered in the thousands in the 1940s and persecuted and put to death, the gospel went out and Jesus was building his church. That's my point. Jesus is building his church and he said even the gates of hell will not 
prevail against it. Now, I love this imagery of the gates of hell. And oftentimes, I think this has been pictured like here we are, the church, and we're cowering, and the gates of hell are coming against us. <laughs> and that Jesus said, take courage, because the gates of hell are not going to prevail against you. That's not the picture that Jesus is painting here, because gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are defensive weapons. Now, think about this. This is the picture that Jesus is, is painting, that all who are without Christ, hell itself is pictured as encompassed with this wall and these gates, and the church, rather than cowering in the face of those gates, is literally storming those gates. And Jesus says they're not going to win. The gates are not going to prevail over the confession of Christ, the founder, foundation of the church. And so every time that we preach the gospel, every time that someone confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living gods, the gates of hell do not prevail. Because someone is delivered from the darkness of hell, trapped by the gates of hell, into the light of Jesus Christ, the future of the church is bright. That's why I love the church. Why I believe in the church. Why every single one of us should have this passion for the church. Not the church sometimes that we see, but the church that Jesus desires. And the only way that the church ever becomes the, Je the, the church that Jesus desires is when we individuals who are part of the church become the people that Jesus desires us to be. Because Jesus is building his church with people. And one of the reasons the bride of Christ is so ugly is because it's filled with ugly Christians. It's filled with Christians that sometimes are more concerned with what their woke friends out in the world think about them than the centrality of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we begin to look more like the world often than we do like the bride of Christ, like the body of Christ, like the family, like the children of God. But Jesus doesn't give up on the church. He's going to build it. The gates of hell are not going to prevail. We keep preaching the gospel because the founder of the church said to do so, and those gates will not prevail. When I was 18 years old, I came to know Jesus. I confessed in my way, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and the gates of hell did not prevail against that confession. I was delivered. All of you who know Christ, you were at one time, you were encompassed, you were bound by the gates of hell and someone told you about Jesus or somehow or another you came to Jesus and the gates of hell were defeated and you were delivered. Isn't that wonderful? Folks, as Derek takes this church, this ecclesia, this body of called out ones into this next generation, we need a renewal of passion and of love and dedication and commitment to what the church is. The body of Christ, the family of God, his bride that he loves. You know, to say I love, let's come back to that statement. To say I love Jesus, but I don't want the church is <laughs> like someone saying to me, James, I like you. One or two people have said that in my life. It balances out, you know. But Laura, eh, do without her. You know what I say? If you don't want her, you don't get me. We're a package deal. 
We were bound together 43 years ago when we said, I do, death, till death do us part. You don't get me without my bride. You want me, you got to have my bride. It's so foolish for someone to say, well, I want the head of the body, but I don't want the body. I want the father of the family, but I, his kids are all crazy. I want the bridegroom, but I don't want nothing to do with the bride. It's foolish. Jesus says, you don't want my bride, you don't get me. You love me, you got to love my bride. You love my instructions, you got to love the body. you got to be a part of the body. You love the father and you don't want his adopted children? Can't have me. They're my kids. I love them. I died for them. Do you see the stupidity of that statement? It's utterly stupid. It really is an excuse for someone that just wants to talk about Christ and not live for him. Love the church, folks. As ugly as she is, as deformed as she is, as wayward as she often is, love the church because Jesus loves the church. And if you're going to love Jesus, you've got to find a way to connect and love his church because he's the founder of the church. And he's building this foundation upon the gospel of, of, of his death, burial, and resurrection of who he is, the Christ, the Savior, and the future is secure until that day the trumpet sounds and the Lord Jesus comes to take his bride to that great wedding feast of eternity. And I'm going to pray for you right now because there may be someone in this room who is on the verge of being delivered from the gates of hell into the kingdom of God. And if that is your heart's desire, and if the Holy Spirit is saying you need to do that, I'm going to ask you as I pray for you to pray that. And then we're going to ask you to just take that registration card, if we still got them in the back seat back, or find a pastor, find someone and tell them, you know what? I confess he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. I've given my life to Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Father, right now, we submit to you as you maybe building your church this morning. You're looking here in this body of believers and you're saying, that's my bride, that's my body, those are my children. And there's someone here in their heart of hearts who's ready to cry out and you want to see the gates of hell not prevail. May you, by your Holy Spirit this morning, bring that to reality and in that person's simple way, Yield themselves and confess you for who you are and be brought into you and into your body. Thank you, Father, that the future of the church, though it looks dark, oftentimes is very bright because you said it is. You're building your church, and when the time is right, you're coming to receive her. And we look forward to that day. Even so, Lord Jesus, our heart prayer is come quickly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Now we got a whole other group of victims who want to come in here so y'all can scatter and. Like bugs. Like bugs. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you.